This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. It is March 18th. My name is John Dunn. Welcome to the Best Friends Podcast. I have to tell you, life for me right now, still pretty weird. Although I haven't had mine yet, the mere realization that a vaccine is possible soonish, that's real tangible hope. And as a Michigander, the signs of spring are emerging. I actually had my office window open a few days recently, and I don't want to jinx it, but right now they're calling for 60 degrees on Sunday. And none of this comes a moment too soon, because about three weeks ago, I hit a wall. I'm okay. I'm thankful to have an amazing partner and family and incredible colleagues who support me, But looking back now over the last few months, I'm not so sure that I was as fine as I kept telling myself and anyone who asked. And that made me realize that as bad as I have been in terms of checking in with myself, I have been equally, if not more so, neglectful when it comes to checking in with you. So how are you? Email podcast at bestfriends.org. Absolutely want to know how you're holding up if you're willing to share. But I'm also interested to hear how things are going in your community. Everyone's on these different timelines for reopening. So what does that mean for you and your organization? How are you prepping for the return? How are you helping your staff members, your coworkers? Podcast at bestfriends.org. And if nothing else, we can trade photos of our pets and that will definitely lift my mood. If you do this work long enough, it doesn't matter what area of the field you're in, you are going to deal with criticism about what you've done or what you're not doing, advocates who may not so politely voice their opinions. We make decisions about life and death, and the passion that we all have for animals can heat things up quickly. Be hurt. Be as the public deserve to know what's going on. What does it take to hold people accountable? Board members kept the meeting short, ignoring the public and the elephant in the room. That's just a random clip from a news report in 2018 for a community that truly could be anywhere. It's just part and parcel of the business. We're not going to change that, but we can change our relationship with our communities, volunteers, donors. It is possible to turn some of your biggest detractors into your most devoted allies, but you won't do that by ignoring people and dismissing what can often be legitimate criticism, even if it's presented in the worst possible way. But please don't take this to mean that I'm somehow excusing toxic behavior because I'm not. It's deplorable. The way that we treat each other sometimes, it runs good people out of the field. It's like we just seem hell-bent on like eating our own to go after people, peers, people in your field, people who are working their asses off day in and day out. It's unconscionable. Societal change is difficult, though, and the road is often very long, and it always takes agitation. Just trying to think of other social issues, civil rights, suffrage, same-sex marriage, sitting back and waiting and asking politely has never worked. So as we keep moving towards No-Kill 2025, there are still many communities that need that agitation. So how do we do it effectively? And for those in positions of leadership in those communities, how can you set aside some of the fears that you have about dropping your guard and letting people in? So a person that immediately came to mind for us when we talked about this episode was Jamie Case. Today, Jamie is with American Pets Alive, working as a project manager for the Human Animal Support Services Initiative. 
Prior to that, she was the executive director of the fantastic organization Gateway Pet Guardians. And before that, she was the advocate pushing for change in her community. So, Jamie, I don't think I know your origin story, if you will, like you're a superhero, you are a superhero. Uh, but how did you even get involved in in animal welfare? We uh, became foster parents and our realtor at the time had been was a founder of this little organization called Gateway Pet Guardians. And that organization um, was really just in charge of caring for stray dogs of the uh, town uh, near my home, which is East St. Louis, Illinois. East St. Louis is right on the river between St. Louis and Belleville, where I'm from. And so it's a, a way that people travel a lot to the city of St. Louis. I was one of those people that would drive that thoroughway and say, why isn't anybody doing anything about all these dogs? I mean, we're talking hundreds of dogs roaming the streets, packs of dogs. You had to stop your car because there were so many. So I realized that there was this little organization and they would rescue when they could, but they were so small. I just threw myself in wholeheartedly. I became the executive director in 2010 and we really started digging down into like why, why it was like this. Uh, this is a community that about 45% of the population lives uh, at or below the poverty line. And there were just no resources, um, no veterinarian, no pet food store, no, you know, grocery stores were even you know, providing not great pet food um, at very high prices. And these are people that, you know, they needed equitable access to pet care. We started really just supporting families. Those families would call us and they'd say, oh, my dog just got on my fence and got hit by a car, or I really need pet food this month. And we just wanted to help in any way that we could. So we did. Part of this timeline is working with animal control. And the municipality that we were working in is part of St. Clair County, Illinois. So one city, multiple small impoverished cities that feed into St. Clair County. We noticed that a lot of our quote unquote street dogs, our dogs that we were caring for on the streets every day, were ending up at animal control as they had resources available. Um, in 2011, there were almost 10,000 animals that were coming into animal control and only about 23% of those were leaving alive. Uh, it was really dismal. And we're like the second largest county in the state of Illinois. And to see those numbers was really disheartening. So we would work with the county as much as possible and say, have we tried this? Can we do this? Can we do this differently? Some things they would do if they were easy, low-hanging fruit, but they were really resistant to change, the director in particular. And he didn't like me or anyone else trying to tell them how to do their job better. And I, I'm a very nice person. <laughs> And so I wasn't, I wasn't suggesting things in a negative way at all for many years. And it just got to the point where it was just constant brick walls we were coming up against. And there really needed to be a big change. So what was the situation there then with the county, the structure, the rescue community? Um, so I started a small coalition in, I think it was 2011, of organizations that could come together and, and transfer animals from St. Clair County's uh, euthanasia list, which was helpful. And animal control came to those and was open to transfers. One of their employees came to the Best Friends Conference with us one year as we were really trying to just work with them. So there were multiple organizations. One 
organizations right across the street from Animal Control, and they were their largest partner. And then Gateway was right there as well. And Gateway was also trying to gather other organizations that would take uh, animals from them, because that's really all that was happening. Um, they wouldn't put pit bull terrier type dogs in their adoption center. They were spraying out kennels with the animals inside. They have free feeders. The dogs weren't getting walks at the time, nothing. They were sitting in kennels for a long time when we were pushing them to keep the animals. Prior to that, it was really catch and kill, to be perfectly honest. Puppies, you know, anything that is totally savable. We were all working together, but we were keeping our eye on things. Um, and we were talking to some other people within the county government that uh, like sat on the county board. So we started coming to the meetings and just showing our support and saying, this is really important and we want to support you in any way possible. Tell us how we can help you. The director at the time was very adverse to change and the county chairman would only listen to him. Um, he didn't really want to hear what the rest of us had to say and kind of tell him that there was this other way that they could be doing things that would save more animals. They wholeheartedly backed the director. Uh, he is no longer with them. Uh, and there is a new director in place, which has been very helpful. Through the magic of editing, I'm going to drop in some of the audio from the county animal services committee meetings from 2016. I think a lot of communities uh, have had and still have animal control, animal shelter. I mean, it's off to the side, right? It's you've got obstinate politicians that, you know, often see sort of everything else is much more important. And I live in Michigan. Potholes are very real here sometimes so big they can swallow a Jeep. And we all agree the potholes are bad, but no pothole ever turned out hundreds of people to a city council meeting. You would think that fact alone would demand it be given a higher priority, but that's not always the case. And that's when you kind of have to keep pushing, right? So yeah. for you, this thing starts to gain steam. These committee meetings, I'm gonna, let me just try to describe for people, you've got a few dozen people uh, in, in a room, everyone's standing. Like there's not a lot of structure to it. It almost looks like a little bit ad hoc, but the leadership was there and they were listening at least somewhat. I mean, the tension in that room though is very real. She said, Mark Kern. And I said, well, what are they doing with the money? She said, it's being used for the roads. It's not I, for the roads. It's for animals. That was me and I did not say that. Uh, yes, you did. I did not say it was being used you the also said, said that's don't say that So tell me how this progressed from this point. Yeah. So uh, we had been gathering evidence after talking to some folks and they were like, here's the thing. If you can tie this to money and how it could be a money saver, um, you know, that's what government's looking at is money. That could be helpful. But also, if they were to find anything that was done that was happening illegally, that is another way that you can get politicians to make moves. <laughs> Not that we were trying to find dirt on them, but we were collecting everything that we could. And this was a good year of collecting pictures and stories and documenting everything that we could. I had gotten a call about a Shih Tzu that was not doing well because our folks would go through and walk the kennels and find, you know, we'll take this dog, we'll take this dog, we'll take this dog. Our volunteer called me and said, this dog is not doing well. It's literally laying in the front of the kennel. It looks like the kennel was sprayed out while the dog was inside and it's struggling. The county appointed vet had just walked through and said nothing. So I went and I said, I will go. And I went and flipped my video camera on as soon as I walked in the kennel and had the dog taking his last breath on the floor, soaking wet. And it is a day I will never forget. 
And I took that dog to one of the local vets. And I said, if this is something that animal control has done, I want to know about it because other people need to know about it. This is not okay. It's not okay at this point. So someone at the vet's office called the director of animal control and told them that I said that. Animal control immediately called us and said, you're not taking dogs from us anymore. And I was like, oh, you just poked the bear. (laughs) So not only am I trying to save as many as I can, but now you're telling the second largest transfer partner, they're not taking animals from you anymore. This is not, your constituents are not going to be okay with this. We brought 150 people to that meeting and spoke our truth and said, your director needs to be taken out of his position. He is not listening. We're doing everything as nicely as we possibly can and suggesting things and it's just not working. And so they started to listen. And, uh, We made a lot of people really mad. One of the people that works at Animal Control, her and I grew up together all of our lives, and she stopped talking to me for a while (laughs) after that situation. But it was necessary, right? So again, you know, in 2011, almost 10,000 animals were going in and only about 23% leaving alive. You fast forward to today and there's 2,100 animals going into the facility and 98% of them are leaving alive. It was necessary. It was very necessary that we had this situation. On the podcast, I always want to try to make sure that we can give people instruction. So in the context of this conversation, what is the appropriate amount of agitation? You know, what is right? What is the most effective? Unfortunately, I do think it's terribly difficult to define because there are so many variables across individual communities and so sometimes, you know, we may be able to look at a community and say, boy, they they were really too harsh there. Or, you know, on the other side of that, may, they really needed to do more. It's unfortunate. We all make mistakes. Always self-reflection, I think, can be positive. Hindsight being twenty twenty, can you look back and say, if we had just done this or didn't do that, I bet we could have hit the end goal sooner and smoother than we did. Um, you know. Hindsight is funny. I don't know. I think that I probably could have involved some other people and maybe talked, built relationships more with the, I just made people mad with that. And, and I, I, and maybe I should have talked to more people than who I did talk to. And maybe it wouldn't have come to that. It was more of a, I went directly to the source and the source wasn't going to listen. And maybe I should have talked to the people around the source more. And maybe they could have pushed in the right direction. But to be perfectly honest with you, John, I this was many years. This is we started working with them in 2012. This is this happened in 2017, 16. So you're talking about five years of the nice way. You know, I mean, at some point there is a boiling point. I have felt terrible about making the director feel the way that he did. Just me personally, emotionally have, no one should have to feel like that. And I understand that, you know, I think that it was what it was, but the fact of the matter is animals were dying every day. The point wasn't to make him feel bad. The point was there needed to be change and we needed somebody to listen to us. So I just came up with the best idea. Okay. When you're being attacked or feeling attacked, just do whatever you need to do to squash it, block people on social media, use fake accounts, respond to people. I mean, whatever you have to do, just get people to shut up and go away. I mean, obviously being facetious there, but I think far too many organizations still today, that is kind of the approach. It's, it's more of a PR issue 
then it is a programs issue and a, and a community collaboration issue. It's like, how can I just get it to go away? And this isn't universally true, but even if someone said some pretty gnarly things, they are saying them because they care, they're passionate, they want to see things be better. So, you know, who is this person? What are they saying? Why are they saying it? Is there truth to it? Can I do anything to fix it? You know, maybe it's even just talking face to face that it's just transparency. Is there a time you can remember, maybe even the first time that you were on the receiving end of some of the same type of approaches you had used with the county? What did you do? Perception's reality is really what it comes down to. So if someone is, if there's a, a, a coup around something that, and and I was personally attacked many times in my career, it made me self-reflect on a lot of things. Like, okay, what are people perceiving here? Why are they perceiving that? What do I need to do to get to the root of this? Do we need to be tra- more transparent? Do we need to put more information out about our financials? Do we need to put more information about, we have a euthanasia binder. You want to know everything and all the things that we've done about every animal? Here it is right in front of you. And that is how I lead through crisis. I also don't engage. I don't think engaging gets you very much <laughs> and very far. I'm not going to fight with people over social media, but I am listening. I'm listening and I'm paying attention the entire time. I mean, if we agree that transparency and listening, collaboration with the community, rescue community, the public, if that's the best way forward, cool. We've solved it. But putting it into practice isn't easy. It is change management, but it's even harder than that, I think, because you're talking about maybe having to overhaul the entire culture of an organization. And one thing I hear over and over when it comes to transparency, telling your community more about what's happening is there's a belief that that will actually backfire. And all you've done is give people better information to attack you, right? Like the more you know about us, the more you'll just use it against us. So how do we help organizations then, do you think, feel comfortable and and accept that transparency really is the right way forward? Yeah, that's a really great question because I do think that that is the key. When you feel like everything is out in the open and people understand the process, for me as a leader, that makes everything so much easier. Do you want to look through this and and whatever it is, financials, end-of-life decisions, let's look through it and let me tell you why. I just think that sometimes there are those people on the other side that no matter what you tell them, they're going to stick to their guns and they're, they're, they don't like, you know, they've decided they don't like you and they, and then that's it. I think giving those tools to leaders and us having the right leaders in place. I think leadership is so vitally important to this industry and, and every industry, but so vital to this industry. We are constantly changing and constantly evolving. And I think more than anyone else, any other industry, but making sure we're bringing up the right people with that mindset who are open to change and open to listening to that feedback and instilling that transparency. And I think that that is best friends has been really great at that. Uh, American pets alive has been great at that is really talking about and giving the tools, I guess, is we listened to Kristen Hassan uh, speak at a conference in Michigan. And she basically was talking about that euthanasia binder. And that was like an, again, an aha moment. So it's those little things that you're like, this is a best practice to do. This will prevent a lot of arguments on the other side. Do this in your shelter. You know, just these these really easy pieces of these are things that you can do and and give it to them. Let me teach you how to do this. Let me show you how to do this. There's always going to be a group of people 
who are not constructive. They are blogging. They're all over social media. They're not creating coalitions. They're not trying to foster a spirit of collaboration and, and conversation. My perspective, which is admittedly limited in many ways, I have seen over the years the loudmouth, nasty bullies, that small percentage of advocates, because I do believe it is a small percentage, that group has not only gotten smaller, but I do also feel like the movement, we there's been almost a maturity about it, and we've been able to ignore the truly toxic people in favor of focusing on what matters, people and pets. But when you're struggling and you've had to deal with real negative energy draining stuff, we're sitting here saying, well, just be more open. But, but again, it's like everything physiologically, mentally, emotionally is telling you to do the exact opposite. I mean, nobody enjoys seeing their name in the paper with anything negative attached. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, and maybe to that point, like crisis communication is something that we really should teach and train, like soft skills, right? In general, in our industry, I think are really important. And it's something that we as probably shelter directors don't, don't support our staff enough with everything from self-care and mental health to, to crisis communication and relationship building with your coworkers. I mean, things that we're professionalizing our industry every waking day as we move forward. And I think that's a really vital piece that that we should think about because of the fact that we are working with, you know, beating, beating hearts is what we would always take to the county and talk to them. Like we, this is not a good that's just sold, or this isn't the buildings department or the, you know, the transportation department. This is a heartbeat and a life. And it's probably somebody's pet, you know, like these, yeah, there's a lot of strays, but they're, they're probably someone's dog, you know, and, and you're, bringing them in and you're sending them right back out, you know, not alive within seven days. And that's, you know, we got to think, we got to think differently about that. Jamie, listen, I appreciate you, the work you've done, the work you continue to do, but also, you know, coming on here and, and being open and vulnerable to talk about the past, warts and all. It was interesting going back and looking at these things. And it was, it was such an emotional roller coaster. And we had that dog that had died we named him Revolution because we knew that he was starting something really big. And I actually just came across the folder that I created with like the videos and the pictures and all of the supporting documentation. And we created PowerPoint presentations to present and say, you know, these are all the ways we can help and all the things we can do. And it was just shot down constantly. So, but we're in a better place. And all of that led us to where we are right now, which is more lives being saved, less animals coming in and more families being supported, which is all I wanted and all we wanted all along. Next week is our game show episode, Who Wants to Be a Lifesaver? Very excited about it. We've been doing some run-throughs this week. I think you'll enjoy it. The producers are Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, Bethany Hines, and Mark Peralta. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.